You're listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Looking forward to this hour coming up. Uh, my uh, guest, Ace Collins, is, I think he's written over 100 books. And I always talk to him around Christmas time because some of his books focus on Christmas. And But he's also written so many other books. And I, I just love him as a guest. He's so incredibly interesting and engaging. And he's written a book on stories behind the songs and hymns about heaven. And certainly if you're in a time of doubt or fear or loss, uh, when you turn to the songs and hymns, it just is a great reminder that this world is not all there is. And what waits us ahead is, uh, as followers of Jesus, is that glorious heavenly kingdom. And there's so many great hymns and songs that talk about heaven. And you're going to love this hour. That's all I got to say. Let me take 60 seconds and bring on Ace. This world is not my home. Treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk. Ace Collins is my guest. He will quickly feel like an old friend to you if you've not heard him before. He's an award-winning author, and he has written over 100 books. He's a consummate storyteller. Ace, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back with you. Uh, and it's really only 96. With 96 just came out. So okay. we're, four short of, we're four short of 100. Get to work, uh, Ace. I got to get to work and do that. And, and number 100 is going to have to be a really special book. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want it just to be another book. Oh, so, I agree. Uh, I agree. You know, so that'll be at the special. How many people get to do what they love to do for a living? And, you know, and that is that has question. been such a joy for my life the last 30 years. I've gotten to do what I love to do for a living. Yeah. And I picked up your book and I started reading it. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in chapter one and I've got tears just pouring down my face. <laughs> and I don't know if it'll happen in this interview because I just, it feels so close to my heart when you start processing these beautiful hymns about heaven. It was a joy to do the books. I had not done a story behind book in probably 10 years. Okay. Uh, and so it was really interesting for me to to have my agent, uh, Greg Johnson out of Colorado Springs, called me. He had just gotten back from his mother-in-law's funeral. And he, he said, have you ever thought about doing the stories behind songs about heaven, songs and hymns about heaven? And I really hadn't. Um, I didn't know I had another stories behind book in me. And I got to looking at it and realized that there was great untapped potential there. And once I got to doing the research, I realized how much more the songs meant when I knew what the people went through who wrote these songs. Yeah. And and it, it's amazing. What you found out is most of these songwriters were going through some really difficult times when they created these, these masterpieces that painted a picture of of what heaven was going to be like. And I think even more importantly, if you listen to the lyrics of these songs and, and you read them carefully, you discover it's more than just what is on the other side, but it's also how to bring a lot of heaven down on this side, not just for yourself, but for those you touch and those you reach. And, and so it's really not only getting to heaven and celebrating there, 
but it's also bringing heaven to earth. And I think that is the thing that most enamored me about the finished product was I realized that we'd also written a great deal about how to live here where you got to experience heaven in this life as well as the next one. Mm-hmm. Ace, I, I want to invite uh, listeners to uh, send in your favorite hymn or song about heaven. I bet Ace has got uh, some background on it that you may not know. You can text me that at 877-933-2484. But I'd love to start with The uh, Wayfaring Stranger. Uh, you know, Wayfaring Stranger to me is one of the most interesting stories. Uh, when I did this book, the editors had, I, I had some really minor little things I wanted to do. I wrote too many stories, for starters, so not all the stories are in this book because they just simply didn't have room for them. A Wayfaring Stranger, though, I explained, I wanted to start the book with that, and I wanted to finish with Victory in Jesus. Mm -hmm. That was my only two things. I told them they could pull out the songs that they didn't have room for, but those two songs had to stay in. And I wanted to start with Wayfaring Stranger because we don't know who wrote it. Uh, And there's over 200 different versions of it out there with small little lyrical changes. It's an American folk song. It probably dates back to before the Revolutionary War. Um, I think it's a blues song before anybody invented the term blues, before they invented blues in Memphis. To me, it sounds very bluesy. It sounds very bluesy to me, too. And yet you have this, this person, and if you listen to the lyrics, they're haunting because this person is homeless. This person is wandering. This person, be they male or female, is not finding much of that Matthew 25, 35 through 40 attitude out there of reaching out to the least of these. They need help. They need to be lifted up. And everywhere they go, they're put down or tossed away or ignored. And therefore, they are losing an opportunity in some cases to have a home, to eat, you know, to be given what they need here on earth to survive. And and we have people around us like this all the time. We have uh, people who are elderly who are locked in homes and never get visits and and don't get out much and no one seems to care about them. They drive by them and don't notice them. We have children that are the same way that live in, in the slums. So the wayfaring stranger is the universal story of someone who has no one to care for them. And yet the uplifting part of this song is the fact the writer knew that in the next life, they wouldn't be ignored. They wouldn't be put down. As a matter of fact, they would be seen as equals in Christ's eyes. In God's eyes, they were his children, and they meant as much to him as those who had everything that ignored this wayfaring stranger. Uh, Many people believe this probably began with the Native Americans. that the song originated there. Others believe it was probably a Negro spiritual. I don't know who wrote it, but I will tell you this. They had a great understanding of the love of God, and they had the great understanding of the fact that God saw everyone as equal. And to me, it is absolutely one of the most incredible pieces of music, folk music, that's ever been penned in the the United States. And by the way, my favorite version, and I've listened to probably 100 different versions right now, is by a Nashville singer named Mandy Barnett. Her version is absolutely haunting. And for those who are listening today, I recommend doing a Google search and finding Mandy Barnett's version of Wayfaring Stranger, because I think it will also also be something that you'll listen to time and time again, and it might even move you to tears. It was recorded by her sometime in the late 90s. Mm. 
It's just uh, amazing, the lyrics. Um, I've got a little version of it queued up here, and I'm going to play a little music in a second. But just the, I'm a poor, wayfaring stranger traveling through this world of woe. There is no sickness, toil, or danger in that fair land to which I go. This and I think, the, I think one of the things, too, that's key in there, and it depends on the lyrics you see, uh, there are two ways those lyrics play out, which really shows uh, the hope. I'm going there to see my mother or I'm going there to see my father. That's uh, just beautiful. And, and so there's going to be a great uniting of a family that's been separated by circumstance and death. And that is one of the most glorious promises that we we have uh, in our faith. Yeah, and of course, the last verse is, I'll, I'll soon be free from every trial. This form shall rest beneath the sun. I'll drop the cross of self-denial and enter in that home with God. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Ace, let me, ta- let me take a little break. I want to play a little of the music. Ace Collins is my guest. His book is Stories Behind the Songs and Hymns About Heaven. Let's enjoy this. Traveling through this world alone, there is no sickness, toil, or danger in that fair land to which I go. glad to have Ace Collins back on the show. He's written 96 books. The one I have in my hand is called Stories Behind the Songs and Hymns About Heaven. He's done a beautiful job of giving the backstory to so many incredibly beautiful songs about uh, and hymns about heaven. Yeah, and by the way, you just played a great one leading in that we need to talk about before it's all okay. over. Because yeah. when, the, when the morning comes, why don't we start with that? Okay. Uh, Charles Tinley, my Lord, what a man. Um he was born in Maryland in 1851. Uh, by the time he was 10, the Civil War had broken out. This was an African-American man who was technically not a slave. Uh, he was uh, actually uh, born a free man because his mother was free, and that was the law at the time in Maryland. If you're, one of your parents was free, you were born free. But his mother died in early age, and so he lived literally in slavery until the end of the Civil War with his father, uh, he would walk and run 10 miles to a school at night to learn how to read after working all day long. And he was the only one in his little church as a young man who knew how to read. So he read the Bible each week in church to the parishioners in a small African-American church, looking for a way to escape uh, to where he could have a better life. He moved to Philadelphia. 
And in Philadelphia, he took a position as the janitor at the John Wesley Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, his one stipulation in taking the job was they would allow him to use the library to further his education. This six foot six inch man who served as a janitor in that church learned Greek and Hebrew and was able to read the Bible in its original form without the English translation. And with by the early 1900s, he had become a lay preacher of some note and was invited to lead the congregation of the John Wesley Methodist Episcopal Church, where he had worked as a janitor. Wow. 150 people in that church at that particular point. He would write songs to go with his sermons. His sermons, by the way, the uh, Smithsonian Institute published a book of his sermons several years ago, and you, people need to read them. I mean, they're amazing. He talks one about a, uh, a, the sermon of a, a tree so heavily laden with fruit that its branches bent down to the ground where even the smallest child could reach up and grab a peach. And he said, that's the way God's love should be with all of us, that we are so heavily bur burdened with fruit and love and goodness that people can touch that goodness at any time and see it in us. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible sermon. And he was asked, though, a lot of haunting questions by his black parishioners who were second-class citizens in the early 1900s. And one of the questions was, when are things going to change? When will we have freedoms? When will we have the right to go beyond just being looked at as the way we are? When will we have the right for education? When will we have the right to shop where we want to shop? And he admitted in a sermon that he couldn't answer that question. But he wrote the song for the sermon called When the Morning Comes that answered when they were for sure going to be equal in the sight of God. And when they got to heaven, there would be no second-class citizens. They would all be brothers and sisters in Christ. So this great song, When the Morning Comes, can be coupled with another one of his great songs, When the Storms of Life Are Raging, Stand By Me, as two of the bookmarks of what I consider the grandfather of gospel music, Charles Tinley. By the way, I mentioned that when he took over in the early 1900s, that church had 150 members. By the time he died in the early 1930s, that church, John Wesley Methodist Episcopal Church, had over 30,000 members and a huge auditorium, one of the first mega churches. And the irony being that white seminaries from all over the United States sent their students to Philadelphia to learn how to preach from this man who was essentially a slave for the first 15 years of his life. It is a remarkable story. It's a remarkable life. And it puts into perspective a man who was able to use both the words and sermons along, coupled to, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, the words of his songs to to breathe life into people's people who were hopeless and had very little to, uh, to prop them up, to breathe life and strength and faith into their hearts and their souls. He also wrote a song that's obviously not in this book called I Shall Overcome about all of the oppression that was going on and that as long as he had faith in God, he could overcome anything. That song later became We Shall Overcome and became the heart piece of the civil rights movement. Wow. That's a remarkable story, Ace. We're, yeah. we're all better off knowing it, too. Yeah. 
You mentioned another one that you wanted me to talk about. I believe that was If We Never Meet Again, The Side of Heaven. Yeah. Um, of course, the, the, the thought of being separated from loved ones by death is, is a big fear. Well, and that's not, it's written in 1941. What was mm-hmm. going on in 1941? Yeah. The United States was on the edge of war. Uh, there was a world war. I mean, the rest of the world was already fighting it. We didn't get drawn into it till the end of that year. And when Alfred Brumbley, one of the greatest songwriters of all time, uh, a man who was born in Oklahoma in 1905, I was a student of E.M. Bartlett, who wrote Victory in Jesus. Um, when Brumbley was touring the country and singing his songs uh, before audiences, he uh, was approached by people who had just been through the pain of depression. He uh, was approached by people who had lost loved ones. And then he foresaw a time when that audience he was looking at out there, many of them were going to be fighting wars. And so he, it haunted him, if you will, to think about these people. And then Eugene Bartlett dies, his man who had been his mentor, his teacher. And Brumbley sat down and in about 20 minutes wrote this song, If We Never Meet Again, This Side of Heaven. Um, and it was a haunting song, and I, it means so much to me because my grandfather, long before I was born, was drafted in World War II. He was the oldest draftee in Fulton County, Arkansas. He didn't have to go because he had daughters, but he went anyway. And they sang this song in church before he left to go to the West Coast and join the Navy. And this song was sung time and time again in churches. I think Brumley, if you will, with the way that he was capable of writing songs, because he also wrote I'll Fly Away, could be compared to Shakespeare or Mark Twain as far as gospel music goes. He was able to pin what common people thought and common people felt in such a way that it moved them to tears, and it led them to faith. And those are two remarkable qualities that most writers don't have. Mm-hmm. All right. Now let's, um, I think we're not going to have time before the break to get all this in, but I want to start into Amazing Grace. Yeah. Amazing Grace, probably the best-known song in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. you realize you realize how how well-known Amazing Grace is when you realize, when you think about how many movies it's been in. Oh, true. You know, think about all the different movies. I mean, it was in Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. When <laughs> when, when Spock dies, they played Amazing Grace on the bagpipes. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, obviously Amazing Grace is in the future, if you think about it in yeah. that respect. But here, here's a song that was written by a slave trader, a man who was born the son of a sailor, a man who was known as the vilest of the vile. And that's what slave traders were. I mean, if you were worked on a slave ship, That's because no other ship would want you. This was a man who targeted inhuman lives. His name was John Newton. He was from London, England, born in 1725. And he drank and cussed and caroused. And you could not have found a worst example of a human being on earth. No one wanted to hang out with him. Uh, One day coming back from slave training in the United States on a ship, He was anxious to get back to Great Britain and spend his money in the bar. And a hurricane hit that ship, and everyone thought they were going to die. And they asked Newton, because Newton had a Christian mother who passed away when he was just a very young boy, if he remembered any of his mother's prayers. 
And Newton prayed one of those, and the storm suddenly went away, Hmm. and they were saved. Now, modern stories have Newton immediately going back and, and rededicating his life. Well, as so often happens when people are saved by God, they don't immediately transform their life. It takes a while. And I think it's a great lesson for all of us that see people who are saved and suddenly their lifestyle hasn't changed. Well, let's have a little patience. There are years and years and years of sin going on in sinful life. And what did Newton do when he got back to England? He went back to drinking and carousing and partying. It took a couple of years for him to feel the real call of God and go to a church. Two of his major influences were the Wesley brothers. And of course, they wrote hymns to accompany their sermons. And when Newton accepted the call to be an Anglican priest and a minister beyond that, he accepted the opportunity to write hymns as well. And he penned what he considered his testimony in song and amazing grace. Now, think about what it was. The people in this congregation didn't know about Newton's background. They just thought of him as this great learned man of God. This was decades after he'd been a slave trader. Mm. And yet he poured out his soul and he admitted who he was and he sang this song to basically tell these people who were listening to him that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've gone, you can be saved. It took an American, by the way, to pen the last verse when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've just begun. We don't know that American's name. He likely may have been the one that changed the, the, changed the song from the original British melody to the song that we know now, which is either Virginia or Kentucky Harmony. And that folk song was married to the words that Newton wrote. And there is no greater known song and probably no song that has led as many to the Lord as amazing grace. Yeah, wow. Ace, let me take a little break. We're up against a hard break. Ace Collins is my guest. Stories behind these songs and hymns about heaven. We'll be right back. The sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. You're listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. It's kind of foolish to play Stump the Guest. It's not going to work. Ace Collins is my guest. He's written a book called Stories Behind the Songs and Hymns About Heaven. And of course, Ace, that song is? In the Sweet By and By. Yeah, and you talk about that in your book. Would you tell us more? Well, when you're looking at a song like In the Sweet By and By, you're looking at one of the best-known hymns, you know, and it really is a hymn. There's some of these songs in here that are gospel music. Some of them, uh, you know, are, are songs that, that really are, are kind of folk songs that have, been, that have had Christian overturns and meanings over the years. But In the Sweet By and By, written in 1866, is, is a hymn, and it was a, a hymn that was very popular earlier, written by a man named Sanford Bennett. Born in a a good place, I guess. He was born in Eden. Well, it's Eden, New York, anyway, in 1836. And, uh, you know, he was a graduate of the University of Michigan. But what changed his life was the Civil War. 
the Civil War was a different war than it had ever been fought before because the weaponry had advanced so much since the Revolutionary War. And therefore, the blood uh, and the death that was inflicted was much higher than anyone had ever seen before. Uh, you know, he described it in some of his writings where he was at places where black dirt turned red. Um, and it was just red everywhere he could see from all the blood. He eventually um, went back home to Elkhorn, uh, Michigan, and began to publish the local uh, newspaper, and uh, then became a druggist as well. And he uh, had Joseph Webster step into his place of business one day, and he was filling a prescription, and after the prescription was over, he went up to talk to Webster. He loved to talk to Webster because Webster was a uh, was a student of Lowell Mason and George Webb, who were two of the greatest pu music publishers and, and musicians of the time. This was a man who had accompanied Jenny Lynn, who was one of the greatest known singers in America. He had worked on Broadway. Um, he had written The Wildwood Flower, which was one of the best known folk songs in the world. But on this cold winter day in 1867, uh, it was a depressed Webster that strolled in and sat down in Bennett's store. Um, and he said something that, 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 let's face it, Bennett had thought about a great deal during the Civil War. And he asked, how could a loving God allow things like this to happen? And they'd just been a, a tragic death in that town. They were also referring to the recent war, to the people they saw who had lost limbs and loved ones. And... Uh, you know, he just had no answer. And both of the men went back and talking back and forth. And we all do this. We talk about that after hurricanes or deaths or illnesses. You know, how could God let this happen? And one of the observations that they ended that conversation was with was, I guess we'll understand it better by and by. And the drugstore owner looked back at Webster, who had made that comment, and said, what if it was the sweet by and by? Hmm. And he thought about, oh, wow. He said, that would be a good, that'd make a good hymn. And they sat down in the next few minutes, wrote that song in the sweet by and by. And for that moment, it gave both of these men more hope. They never foresaw it as being this great hymn. But thanks to Webster's contacts, it was quickly published and became one of the best hymns in the United States in the late 1800s. Um, I, I think what's so profound about it, 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 it was written by two men who at that point in their lives were hopeless. And they were hopeless because of the tragedies they had seen in their lives. Um, they both had pretty much in some ways given up on things ever getting better. And yet, when they wrote this song, suddenly they were reconnected with God. And of course, everyone who has heard this song since has also felt that same kind of connection. Um, therefore, the questions that we don't have answers to are probably because we don't have the mental capacity to see the world as God does. And that's what these two men understood, that they were mortals when there was an immortal God who could see the answers and understand the way things played out and how they played out for the good. And in the sweet by and by, they're going, to they're going to rejoin all of these people they had lost, all these people who have been tragically killed 
and they were going to join them in a world that would know peace, that would know only peace, not war, and the answers would be there, and they would understand them finally. A suffering produces such incredible art, doesn't it? It does. You know, um, I once talked to a very famous country music writer who had written scores of songs, and I asked him what the secret was, and he said the secret was to write about your life experiences. And I, I think that's nowhere more evident than gospel music. Uh, gospel music writers do not think of hooks like popular pop music writers do. They don't say, hey, well, here's a hook. Let's write a song about it. Mm -hmm. They actually, people who write hymns and write gospel music and great choral anthems, they're moved by a moment in their lives when heaven opens up and suddenly they're given this great inspiration not to write a song around a hook, but to write a song around a spiritual truth. And I think that's why these these songs have lived on for generations is because they are written around that spiritual truth. And that spiritual truth is what we have to hang on to here on this earth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, right. There's another song that is a, a Southern gospel song called I Wouldn't Take Nothing for My Journey Now that's really kind of similar in a way. But it, the inspiration was unique. Uh, Rusty Goodman, who wrote the song uh, from the famous Happy Goodman family, but he had he wanted to write the greatest song ever. He wanted to be the big act who wrote the rock and roll hits for Elvis and everyone else, and he failed miserably. The only thing he was able to do very well during that time was drink himself into stupors. Mm. And eventually he moved away from Nashville, and he found his brother who was a preacher in Kentucky, and started working in, in Kentucky and playing piano at his brother's church. And he ran into a man whose name was Shorty Carter. Shorty Carter was what we would call today developmentally disabled. He lived by himself, but he was known in the terminology of the time as the village idiot. That's an unfortunate term, but that's what people referred to him as. You know, and Shorty had this habit of going to every church in town and he would always want to lift his hand and, and, and give his testimony or talk or say something. And it worked once or twice. And then most preachers shut him down because they knew what he was saying was not going to make a whole lot of sense. And yet in this one church, the Goodman's aunt let him speak. And he talked about how horrible his life was and the way his people made fun of him because of his deficiencies and how he was ridiculed. But he wasn't going to let that get him down. He, wasn't, he was going to go forward and still believe in God. And he was going to hang on to his faith. And even in the face of everything that had happened in his life, he wouldn't take nothing for the life that he had been given by God. Well, several years later, he's dying in the hospital. And he's dying a painful death. And Rusty Goodman goes to talk to him. And in the midst of all of this, he asks Shorty, how you doing? And Shorty, in the midst of his pain, looked at Rusty and grinned and said, I wouldn't take nothing mm. for my journey now. And Rusty went home and wrote that song. And, of course, that became one of the signature songs for the Happy Goodman family. It has been turned into a contemporary Christian hits and other things. And I think Shorty was given the temptation by the devil back then, by Satan himself, to sit there and curse people and get angry and get upset. And yet he kept his faith and didn't do it. And I think that's one of the great lessons of life. And because of that faith, he went someplace where he was seen as equal with everyone else. And his pilgrimage had paid off 
in the end. And I think all of us need to have that attitude, no matter what happens to us, hey, I wouldn't take nothing for the experiences I've had because they have given me an opportunity to be closer to God. That's beautiful. All right, Ace, how about Swing Low, Sweet Chariot? Ah, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. It's one of the few Negro spirituals that we can actually tie to the man who wrote it. Most Negro spirituals, we don't know who wrote Good Old Gospel Ship, Mm -hmm. which is an amazing song. But uh, Wallace Willis um, wrote this song. He was a former slave in Alabama, was actually owned by a Choctaw Indian. So here is a red man who owned a black man, uh, which is an irony that that happened more than you would know. Uh, When the red man was driven off of his land and, and forced through the Trail of Tears to go to Oklahoma, Wallace went with him. But when he got to Indian territory, he was no longer considered a slave. The Indians considered him an equal. And so he actually escaped slavery through the Trail of Tears with the Indians that went to Oklahoma. Once there, he worked in, later would work in a children's home. He taught himself how to read. He became a kind of a Bible scholar, very positive person. And in the school, he realized that if he could write songs about biblical passages, that the kids, the Indian kids in the school could understand about Jesus much, much more and more deeply. They could sing these songs and then they could share these, their faith found through these songs with their parents. So it became kind of a missionary act. His songs should have never ever gotten out of Oklahoma, but he taught his song, Swing Low, uh, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, which was probably inspired by, you know, Ezekiel coming down to earth, you know, and seeing the chariot and having the vision of the chariot. Well, the chariot coming down to take Ezekiel home, I guess you would say, and having that vision. Um, and he taught the song to the uh, children at the old Spencer Academy, which was run by missionaries. And and there was a man there named Alexander Reed who happened to be there that day when the children sang the song, and he was so impressed with it, he took it back to Nashville, Tennessee, and the Fisk College Jubilee Singers, and they took it on a national tour, and it eventually got to England where the Queen heard it, and it became her favorite song. So Queen Victoria fell in love with Swing, that swing Low, Sweet Chariot. This, I think, is an example of the universal language of Christ. But I I also want you to think about something else here. Why chariot? Well, back then, when the biblical, uh, when the Bible was written, a chariot was the form of the nicest vehicle you could own. Only the rich people, uh, you know, owned this, essentially speaking, horse-driven sports car. (laughs) I mean, it was a Ferrari, if you you want, you Mm -hmm. know. It would beat the wheels off my 65 Mustang. I mean, this is a fancy car. And um, if you think about it, these people who were slaves saw Jesus coming down and bringing them back to heaven in the fanciest vehicle they would ever get to ride in. They would never have a chance to even touch this vehicle. And yet Jesus gave them the opportunity, their faith did, to ride in a vehicle they couldn't touch while they were on, on earth. Once again, the rewards of heaven of, of being equal in God's sight, where every man is the same, where all of us are brothers and sisters. And I, I think that is the lesson that you also find in a lot of these hymns. These are people who are struggling, people who are downcast, people who are poor, and yet they realized the one thing they weren't poor in was faith, and that would eventually make them rich in glory. Mm. Hey, it's just spectacular. Um, loving this. I know my listeners are too. I'm going to take a little break. Ace Collins is my guest. 
stories behind the songs and hymns about heaven. We'll be right back. special repeat performance. Oh, well, I'm tired and so weary, but I must go along till the Lord will come and call, call me away, oh, yes, well, the morning so bright and And the night, night is as black as the sea. That's a good message for today. Ace Collins is my guest. Stories behind the songs and hymns about heaven. And, of course, that's Peace in the Valley, Ace. By the way, who's singing that song? Whose cut is that? I'm going to have to put Rebecca on. That is Red Foley. Uh, so I th- that's what I thought it was. Red Foley had the first big hit on that. Um, Foley's version influenced a lot of people, and it opened up uh, the opportunity for people to to understand and get to know Thomas A. Dorsey's music out of the black church. Uh, Thomas Dorsey uh, was a man who went from the South to Chicago in the 20s and became a uh, Tin Pan Alley, if you will, jazz pianist. And what a pianist he was. And he was on the verge of committing suicide, though, because he just... He was not happy, um, and then remembered the church upbringing it had. Went to a church, and uh, rededicated his life in the midst of the depression, um, early depression, um, and decided to start writing gospel music that sounded like the music he had been playing in clubs. So, in a way, he was inventing contemporary Christian music before there was contemporary Christian music. If you think about it. The problem is none of the churches would play it. And finally, when his wife passed away and then a day later his son died in a tragic birth experience, he wrote uh, a song that he called Blessed Lord, Take My Hand. We know it is precious, Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, let me stand. It became a a huge choral hit in both black and white churches. Uh, In the late depression, 1939, 1940, he's traveling across Ohio in a train, and he looks out the window and he sees these peaceful farm scenes out his window. At the same time, he's reading about uh, a world war that's already started in Europe. The diametrics of of having those opposite scenes in his head at the same time caused him to think about heaven and the allusions to the war are clear there. You know, when, when the lion lays down with the lamb, you know, it's all about when there's going to be a time when there's not going to be war and destruction. And the only answer in his mind was heaven. And he wrote Peace in the Valley. Um, it became an incredibly popular song during World War II. Red Foley had a big hit on it. And then it was almost forgotten. And 
there's a great irony in the fact that Thomas A. Dorsey, as an older man, was actually watching Ed Sullivan one Sunday night in 1957, January 6, 1957, and was not expecting to see anything on Ed Sullivan that he had written, and Elvis Presley stood in front of a microphone and sang Peace in the Valley. And right before Presley sang it, Presley asked viewers to give money to the Red Cross to help 250,000 Hungarian refugees who were fleeing a Soviet invasion. Now, you would wonder, what would that one sentence asking people to, to give a little money to the Red Cross do in 1957? And what would the song that he would sing after that do in 1957? I think it was a combination of the song and the plea that worked together. But within one week, more than $6 million in 1957 dollars that had to be sent through the mail, not with credit cards or phone calls, reached the Red Cross to help those refugees. So Peace in the Valley became not only something that asked questions about when will there be peace, but it also for millions of refugees or hundreds of thousands of refugees brought some peace and comfort and joy and probably faith when they received this gift. It also made that night with that song made Dorsey a legend and Dorsey's music is still being played to this day because of that one night in 1957 when Elvis sang that song on, on the Ed Sullivan show. I definitely would have sent money if I were alive. Yeah. And, and, and those people did, you know, is that one, that one plea followed by that. And I think that also helped take Elvis from being this, this rebel yeah. to, to, to suddenly being accepted uh, by another generation as a, as a young man who was not scared to sing a hymn on, on TV, even in 1957, you didn't see that very often on a show like Ed Sullivan. And yet Presley did it sang his mother's favorite song and, and look what happened wow. in the process. You yeah. know, by the way, there, there were so many orders, so many requests within a, within a day, there were over a million requests uh, for Peace in the Valley uh, by Elvis Presley. And they had to go into a studio and, and cut Peace in the Valley and Precious Lord, Take My Hand. And it is no secret. And um, uh, gosh, one other song uh, that became uh, the best-selling uh, extended play 45 of all time at that point. And it did that within just a couple of weeks. That's how much That's people amazing. were crazy about gospel music at that time. And the record companies didn't realize it. This is why I love why you write books, Ace. Well, it's fun for me to find out these little nuggets as well. Um, I mean, you know, it, it really makes me appreciate the music much more when you know the story behind the songs, in particular, the songwriters themselves. In Dorsey's life, if people get a chance to read it, is one of the great life stories of all time. And, and he really is. I mentioned earlier Tinley being the grandfather of gospel music. There is no doubt in my mind that Thomas A. Dorsey, you know, not the, not the orchestra leader, but the black songwriter, is absolutely the father of gospel music. We wouldn't have the, some of the great gospel music that we have now if it hadn't been. There would be no Gaither vocal band, I don't think, if there hadn't been a Thomas A. Dorsey first. Mm -hmm. Ace, this might be a timely hymn, but uh, we'll soon be done with Troubles and Trials. Oh, yeah. What a, what a story that is, because it was written by another African-American. And, and perhaps so many songs about heaven were written by African-Americans many, many years ago because they didn't have much hope here on earth. So heaven offered them uh, a great hope. And, and when you're looking at this man, he was a preacher. 
and and he was a preacher at a church that was so poor it had no hymnals. I mean, this is this is when you're poor is when you don't even have hymnals to sing on, and so you know, Clebet Derricks was caught up in this, and he wrote these songs for these for his congregation, and then went to Dallas, Texas in the 1930s, and went to the Stamps Baxter uh, Music. Um, company there in Oak Cliff, Texas, just south of Dallas. And he sang his songs. And he said, you may not like them much, but I, I want to sing them for you. And they fell in love with We'll Soon Be Done With Troubles and Trials. And they they said, we want to publish it. How much do you want for it? And the answer was, I'd like a box of hymnals for my congregation. It became one of the best-selling songs of the 1930s, and all the songwriter got was a box of hymnals. <laughs> but for his congregation and his people, that meant more than he could ever understand. He walked back into a recording studio in Nashville, Tennessee, about 40 years later, the 1970s, and they looked at this man, this old black man, and said, what do you want, sir? And he said, I'd like to play a couple of my new songs for you. And they said, have you ever written anything? He said, well, you may know something I, I wrote you know, we'll soon be done with troubles and trials and just a little talk with Jesus, because that was the other song that got him the hymnals. And they were just floored, and they checked it out, and it was true. And word music at that particular point um, went and took this guy's material and went back to Stamps Baxter, who couldn't even find him and didn't even know where he was, and they got his royalties back. But this man didn't get to record his songs until he was in his 70s, and he recorded them with his family. And that's a wonderful thing. You can find it online. Go listen to Tinley, whose voice was not that good by that time, but boy, his heart was in those songs. To listen to him sing, We'll Soon Be Done With Troubles and Trials, is one of the most inspirational things I've ever heard in my life. Mm -hmm. Ace, we just have a couple minutes left, and I'm wondering what song might be in your top three. What, what rises to the top for you, Ace Collins? Let's do a real quick story behind Victory in Jesus by E.M. Bartlett. E.M. Bartlett was a guy who everything he touched turned to gold. Even in the midst of the Great Depression, this man could write music that lit up the world and kept him living a wonderful lifestyle through his publishing company. He never had to suffer, in other words. He was always seemingly blessed. And people always said, if anything happens to Bartlett, you know, he'll take that wonderful faith he's got and he'll form his hand into a fist and he'll shake it at God because he's never been challenged. Coming back from a worldwide tour where he had sung before presidents and, and kings and queens, this man with this incredible, by the way, upbeat personality, he wrote the country music hit, Take an Old Cold Tater and Wait for Jimmy Dickens. Hmm. He, he was a funny guy. He had a stroke. And by the time they got him home off this train trip, he could not even move his hand. He couldn't talk. And the doctor said, what little time he has left, he'll never regain any of his senses. He'll be a vegetable. It took him several months to learn how to form words again. Then the voice was very halting. And finally, he was able to shape his hand into a fist. But rather than curse God, he stuck a pencil in it. And the man who could write music and write complete songs in five or 10 minutes, it took him a month and a half. But he wrote the last song he would ever write. It would be published after he was dead. But that song proved he had never lost his faith. And it was victory in Jesus. And that song, I think, has the most incredible story and therefore is one of the most powerful songs I have ever heard because it was written by a man who had lost everything, and including his ability to sing. And he had to write five minutes. He had to write for five, six hours at a time just to get one or two words down. And yet he wrote this anthem that I think is one of the greatest anthems ever penned. Wow. Just phenomenal, Ace. I, 
I realized I could have you on 94 days in a row and <laughs> or 96 days in a row, and we could talk about a different book every day. It is a joy to talk about uh, the books, but I think it's more fun when people I get emails from people who read them and been touched by them. I hope the listeners out there will enjoy the book. Well, I know they are. They've enjoyed this uh, hearing you talk, and I know they're going to get the book. It's called Stories Behind the Songs and Hymns About Heaven. Ace Collins is the author, and he's been my outstanding guest today. Ace, have a good uh, rest of the day. Let's do it again soon. God bless you all. Look forward to it. Yep, that wraps up our show. Thank you to all my guests, and a special thanks to Ace for giving me a full hour of his time. What an incredible story. Well, that's our show for the day, and you know what? Show for the week. As I'm looking at Philippians 1.6, it says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What a great thought to end the week on. And it is the end of the week. Let's ring the bell. See you Monday.